There are few individuals in the world that have seen, built, and led multiple of the world's iconic companies. I was thrilled this week to chat with one of those individuals, David Sachs, founder and general partner at Craft Ventures. David was a core member of PayPal and served as the company's first product leader and COO. David went on to found enterprise collaboration company Yammer, one of the fastest growing SaaS startups in history. Microsoft acquired Yammer for $1.2 billion just four years after its founding. Not only has David been a successful founder, he's also been one of the most impressive investors in tech, having personally invested in over 20 unicorns, including Affirm, Airbnb, Facebook, Lyft, Opendoor, Palantir, Postmates, Reddit, Slack, SpaceX, Twitter, and Uber, amongst others. In today's conversation, I got David's thoughts on a variety of lessons leading, operating, and investing in multiple multi-billion dollar companies. David, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, David, thrilled to have you on the show today. You know, you're you're one of the most insightful and, and nuanced thinkers, you know, from my perspective in tech. I want to cover a ton of topics today, you know, how you think about growing SaaS businesses, operating rhythm in high growth startups, uh, and leadership. But let's first kick off with the topic that's fit for the times. You wrote a piece in late October as the CEOs of Twitter, Facebook, and Google found themselves in the hot seat on Capitol Hill. Just set the context for us on, on what's been going on in tech, you know, and censorship over the past few years. Yeah, well, um, big tech has increasingly found itself in the hot seat over decisions uh, about censorship, you know, what content should be allowed on social networks, um, who should be allowed to speak, who should be kicked off, what kind of content is acceptable. And, um, and, and they've always had a very hard time dealing with it. But I think they sort of had uh, prior to, uh, you know, about three months ago, I think they sort of had this semi tenable position that we're going to make everybody unhappy. And, you know, it felt like at that hearing that um, both Democrats and Republicans were sort of attacking them. It, it felt like they were, the politicians were working the refs, you know, and, um, and that the social networks had made, were trying to maintain this stance of neutrality with respect to the people and the content that were allowed on their social networks. And I think that really just in the last few weeks, uh, or rather the last few months uh, re regarding the election, um, big tech really crossed a, a threshold. You know, there were a few really major decisions that were made by Twitter and Facebook that uh, in the minds of, say, half the country, um, you know, appear to be taking sides. Um, first, you had the decision uh, before the election uh, by Twitter and Facebook to censor the New York Post Hunter Biden story, which, um, you know, regardless of what you think of that story, I didn't per personally think too much of it. Um, it seemed to me like a pretty obvious sort of October surprise type hit piece, but it was a pretty remarkable step for the social networks to, to tr essentially replace the editorial judgment of the New York Post with their own judgment about what should be allowed, what content should be allowed on their social networks, and to effectively interfere in a presidential election um, like that so close to uh, election day was, you know, it was pretty striking. And then uh, subsequent to that, you had, um, you had two other really important decisions. One was obviously the, the permanent banning of, of President Trump, and the other was the, the shutting down of Parler, which wasn't done by Twitter and Facebook. It was done by, by Google, Amazon, and, and uh, Apple. But it was seen as being of a piece with the decisions that uh, Facebook and Twitter were making. And so I feel like we've sort of crossed this threshold now, or big tech has, where, you know, 
half the country doesn't trust them anymore to be neutral umpires and uh, now perceives them to be partisan actors in uh, in the polarization that we have in this political polarization that we have in this country. And I think the ramifications of that are going to be quite far reaching. Let's let's unpack the decision you alluded to. Let's unpack the decision for, for Twitter to permanently ban um, Trump. I'm curious how you think about this, David, both from an inside out an outside-in perspective. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, A, the merits of the specific act, right? Just the specific context of the circumstance, potential violence, you know, surrounding it, et cetera, right? So inside out. And then outside in, right, which I think is more interesting and, and more, um, you know, impactful for, for, a long-term, um, for a long-term basis, which is really implications of the decision, you know, more broadly and, and the standard and the precedent that it sets. So let's unpack that decision a little bit more from your perspective. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just say I'm not going to miss Trump's tweets. <laughs> you know, I think over the last four years, we've all gotten, you know, these push notifications on our phones where our phone's constantly lighting up with the latest provocation. And, you know, frankly, I'm very happy for that to, to be over. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see a, a reduction of my push notifications. It's just like, oh, thank God, like that, that, that part of it is over. Um, but uh, and so I'm not going to miss that at all. But but my concern goes um, a d- deeper than the specific decision. And 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 really, censorship decisions are not just about uh, what views are being censored and whether those views are, are right or wrong, but also who has the power to censor and what kind of precedent does that create in the future. And um, you know, I think there was a, a spectrum of reasonable actions that Twitter and Facebook could have taken in the midst of the violence that was happening on Capitol Hill January 6th. I think there was a spectrum where they could have taken down specific tweets that were deemed to be provocative or inciting. I think they could have justified uh, a, a, an account suspension until we were, until the violence was over, or maybe we were through the peaceful transition of power. I understand all of those arguments. I think there was a, a spectrum within which you could make judgment call, but um, but I don't know. I don't understand the, um, the 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 justification for for making a decision to permanently ban at that time when you could have gotten through the peaceful transition of power with say a 10, 10 day ban and then you could have revisited the permanent decision. But instead, they made this permanent decision, and you saw immediately the reactions uh, across the world from uh, you know other state leaders. You know Angela Merkel denounced it as um, suppressing free speech. The, the, the French finance minister uh, denounced it. You know, Alexei Navalny, who's the, the Russian dissident, denounced it. And you saw that all across the world, people started asking the question, should Twitter and Facebook, should these big tech companies have the right to censor and suppress the viewpoints of a head of state? And so, um, you know, I think that, you know, the 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 the, the the hard part about censorship is not the the immediate action to to censor because you know censorship always happens as a result of some outrage that provokes you know the desire of people to silence that outrageous point of view, uh, but it's always about the second and third order consequences, and you start to see that with I think you're going to now see all these countries asking the question: Can we trust Facebook and Twitter to be? you know, our platform or our megaphone. And uh, this could really start to, um, to, to break apart the, the World Wide Web into a bunch of country-specific solutions, um, to say nothing of the consequences in the United States. 
One of the common criticisms, you know, I think to the free speech debate um, is, is that these reactions are, are valid, right? Given the companies taking these decisions are private. You have an interesting contextual overlay, which is, you know, this issue is more complex given, you know, effectively what you call the digitization of our public square. Um, I want you to right. spell that concept out more clearly and, and talk about those implications because I think it puts um, I think it puts a really interesting underlying nuance or underlying um, you know take to this idea to this more simplistic framework which I think you know again regardless of political persuasion a lot of folks have have put forth which is effectively you know company is private private company can make whatever decision it wants ergo you know, decision here is valid, right? And it's a little bit more complicated than that. So let's, right. let's unpack that kind of digitization of the public square concept. Yeah, well, it was, it was very interesting to hear um, so many people on the left uh, making the uh, suspiciously radical libertarian argument that companies should be able to do whatever they want. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to, to um, let, let's talk about, you know, what free speech means in the modern era. I mean, most speech, most political speech certainly now occurs online and it occurs through the social networks. I mean, they are the platform where discussion occurs. Um, it is the place where people, you know, the first amendment doesn't just contain a right to speech. It also contains a right to assemble because that when the, when the framers wrote that, the way that you would um, speak to a crowd is you would go to the town square, you go to the courthouse steps, you put your soapbox down, you'd gather a crowd and you would, that's how you would, you would convey a message to people. Well, the way that happens today, the, the place where people gather and assemble uh, is on social networks. That is the way it happens. Basically our uh, free speech, the town square got privatized, speech got digitized, and it also got centralized. You know, back in the, the, the time when the first amendment was written, there was a multiplicity of places you could go. There was town squares all over the country. Now all of that's been replaced by a handful of big tech companies. And, you know, and I, and I think it's, it's, it's a little bit naive not to recognize that, um, you know, that, 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 that speech in the modern era, again, has been privatized, centralized, and digitized. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the creation of these companies. This is the business we're all in. We're all, we're, you know, we as investors and founders are all trying to create the next Google or Facebook. But, and, that, and that's our job as investors and founders. But I think government has a job too, which is to protect our rights. And you know, something's not a right if it can just be taken away. And you know, what exactly is your right to free speech in the modern era if you can be summarily canceled and deplatformed by all of these big tech companies without any right to due process? They can just cancel you. And so what exactly does it mean today to have a free speech right? So Jack Dorsey came out afterwards, and I think actually spoke to, I, I was a bit surprised kind of by the, by the reaction. I mean, he spoke to the danger effectively of Trump's ban, right? Um, how did you interpret and digest what Dorsey said? I, again, kind of going back to that inside out and outside in framework, I thought it was interesting because I think the limitation of outside in for Dorsey was taking this at the Twitter level, um, which, you know, whether or not there was collusion, discussion, whatever in the background, I think the the key you know the key challenge that ended up happening in this whole debate was it's not just that Twitter and Facebook kicked you off then you were off of the App Store for Google and Apple and then you were right. literally off of the internet from Amazon right and so when all these companies took the, that acting kind of collusive step and then you saw the downstream implications of companies like Snap and so on and so forth kind of following the lead right how yes, did you exactly. what, you know how did you interpret what Dorsey said and and what did you what did you make of that 
Well, I've, I've described Jack as my favorite oligarch because after he makes these really controversial decisions, he'll come out and suddenly get very introspective and admit mistakes. Um, and so, you know, I think he's being applauded for that. But I, I think Jack made some really great points in his uh, tweet storm about their decision. And, and what he said was that when we decided to permanently ban President Trump, we didn't think it was as big a deal because there are plenty of other places he could go for speech. And he admits that that argument was undermined by the fact that every other big tech company then did exactly the same thing. And that's kind of my point. I, I've called this um, a speech cartel. You know, if, if all the big tech companies get together to deny you your free speech rights, that's, that's basically, a, a, that's a cartel. To what extent do you have free speech? Now, what, what, what Jack said was that we didn't collude with these other companies. We didn't coordinate. But he did say that they emboldened each other. And there's a term for this in antitrust law. It's called signaling. You know, you play a game of follow the leader. Signaling occurs when companies that normally compete with each other, you know, a market leader comes out, makes a clear statement, and then, and then all these other companies take the same action. And that's what you saw happen is it started with Twitter and Facebook, and then it very rapidly went to, to uh, Google and Apple and Amazon. And then there was just this giant feeding frenzy and piling on by the entire industry. And... You know, and I, I think that that um, dynamic, basically a consortium of big t tech companies who are getting together uh, to deplatform, uh, you know, people they don't like or views they don't like, really highlights this issue that I don't think is going to be acceptable to you know a vast swath of the American people once the issue of Trump is gone. You know, I think now I think. I think there was such a reaction to, to Trump that I think a lot of people welcomed the decision to ban him. But I think that, again, we have to think about these second order consequences of, you know, who has the right, who has the power to, to basically engage in these deplatforming decisions. Do you think big tech is leading you know, from behind on this issue? I, I have a perspective that they are, which is it's much more of a follow on effect because of other dynamics in Silicon Valley, which might be, you know, general political persuasion of employees, right, power that employees have, especially, you know, star employees in terms of flying or, or uh, you know, flying to other organizations, et cetera. It, it feels like a lot of the reactions are leading from behind. Um, so there's, there's kind of two thoughts I have there, you know, A, your reaction to that statement, right, if you agree with that or not, that big tech is leading from behind. And then I think more importantly, regardless of whether that's the case or so, what's the policy, you know, you would suggest that big tech follow or, or embrace, right, um, you know, to go forward from here? So th these big tech companies are not making these decisions in a vacuum. They're under tremendous pressure and the pressure is coming from both below and above. So in terms of the pressure from below, they the employees are basically banding together uh, to form letter writing campaigns and and pressuring the leadership of the company to censor Trump. Um, and, you know, I think that part of the reaction to, to that needs to be for the leaders of these companies to say, you know, listen, guys, the only reason why the American people are willing to entrust us with so much power over free speech is because we're neutral arbiters. And I understand that you guys feel strongly about this, um, but we can't be partisans. We have to treat everybody the same and we need to have a, have a, um, a, 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 a set of neutral speech, neutral rules that are universally applied. I think that's kind of what the leadership of the, of the company should be saying to the employees. But there's also pressure from above, which is the, you know, like we talked about a few months ago, there was a, 
a Senate hearing in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee in which a number of senators who will now run that committee were, were telling the big tech CEOs two things. A, um, we want you to censor more. And B, we're thinking about breaking you up. You know, it's, it, it's sort of a soft power. It's basically threatening these big tech companies that they will be broken up unless they engage in a greater degree of censorship. And, and I find that part of it to be um, a little bit disturbing because you're essentially, because the state in that case is using soft power to influence big tech to take actions that clearly would not be allowed under the First Amendment if the state were to take them itself. And, uh, and th that part to me, I think, needs to be very carefully uh, considered. How do you think about the rise, David, of, of alternative social media messaging, you know, et cetera, type products? Is there opportunity in, in the market to build these types of products or it's, it's just too difficult, you know, with the stronghold that big tech has? In, in the tech industry, it's kind of a, a lazy investor faux pas to say, you know, well, what if Amazon builds this? What if Google builds this? We, kind of, we talk about that kind of as a logical fallacy. Um, but when I think about these types of products, I actually find myself asking the question that is there actually opportunity to build alternative products? Or is this truly a space in which, you know, the stronghold of big tech is too strong? Well, it's always possible to build new apps. Um, but these companies are uh, network companies. And so the network effects are very, very strong. But the reality is there was an alternative app. Um, there was an app called Parler, which uh, was actually had, had rapidly uh, rose to become the number one app in the app store in terms of new downloads because you know, over the last few months, a lot of uh, conservatives had gotten upset with Twitter's censorship policies and they had moved over to Parler. And, and, and so when Twitter and Facebook made the decision to permanently ban President Trump, the argument was, well, that's not censorship because you can go to some other app. Well, then Apple, Google, and Amazon banned Parler, which was the other app to go to. And so I think you have to look at these decisions of big tech in total you have to look at it as sort of a consortium of actors who are, if they're not coordinating explicitly, they're certainly following each other's lead. And, and I think this is sort of the danger is that, you know, when viewed as a consortium of actors who all think the same way, uh, it really does, you know, raise, raise these, these speech questions. One of the elements you, you focus on craft, you, we talked about it a little bit earlier, of course, is, is funding disruptive innovation, right? Um, and, and so I want to transition, you know, from the censorship topic and, and jump to some topics on operating lessons learned and, and really thinking through, you know, high growth companies from your background. And I want to start with an article you wrote a couple months ago on operating philosophy. You, you coined this philosophy called the cadence. Let's take a step back and, and start with, uh, you know, before we dive into what the cadence actually is. Let's just take a step back and even start with the uh, with the question of why the need for this philosophy versus you know hiring a COO. Right. Well, the reality is for for those of us who've been involved in um, you know, high growth startups, um, and and by the way, this is my real job and what I spend ninety nine percent of my time talking about. Um, it's just that uh, you know I I care about civil liberties, and so um, I got off on on this uh, tangent of, of defending free speech. Um, but, you know, what, what I spend most of my time doing is working inside these high growth startups. And the reality is that um, m most of them are kind of a shit show. Um, you know, there's a lot of chaos and, uh, and, and success is not necessarily the antidote for that because the faster they grow, the more chaotic they are. And so, um, you know, most of what, most of the time what happens is that the state of the company becomes 
so disorganized and so chaotic in the face of hypergrowth that the, the board and the founders all kind of cry out as one, we need a COO. That's sort of the magic solution. And m- maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe they do. But my argument is that what you're really missing is an operating philosophy. And uh, what I've tried to do in the, in the cadence is describe a way to synchronize all of the key activities of a startup um, so that the team is working together in, in unison. So what, what is the cadence? Let's, let's get to the key insights that kind of distill or, or underlie that philosophy. Yeah. Well, there's, there's sort of um, four key functions that, that work together in a, in a SaaS startup. Um, there's, there's sales and finance and there's product and marketing. Um, and so it's really based on a, on a pretty simple insight, which is that you want to synchronize sales and finance on, uh, on, on a quarterly sort of fiscal calendar, like fiscal quarters. And then you want to synchronize uh, product and marketing, but on a different quarterly cycle. You want it to be sort of it to sort of be in the middle of the of the cycle. And what that allows you to do is create an operating rhythm in in the in the company. So so you might do you know so at the end of every quarter, you, you've basically got sales on a quarterly plan. They they have a quarterly close. They hit their number, and then you begin the next quarter. The finance team puts the books together. You have a board meeting. Um, and then you start working towards the next uh, quarterly uh, quota. But then meanwhile, sales and uh, sorry, product and marketing are building towards a big re- release event, which typically happens in the middle of the quarter. And I'm a big fan of having release events as a way to focus the energy of the, the team and the external attention of customers and, and the world um, on, on the company. So I like product and marketing to work together uh, towards this big release event. And that typically happens in the middle of the quarter, so you're not lighting everyone's hair on fire at the same time. And then after the big launch event, you know, again, you're, you have the race to the end of the quarter where sales is trying to close and close out and hit the number. And so I just generally find that if you put the company on that operating rhythm, uh, everyone knows what they should be doing, and um, it's just a simple formula for keeping the, the you know the, the team working together. Unpack the the product and marketing system a little bit more. Um, I, one of the things I found interesting from reading the article was emphasis, you know, on launch events, right? Which I don't think is a intuitive insight necessarily, unless you've spent time, you know, in not only in these companies but in hyper growth companies. Give a couple examples, or, or let's unpack that kind of a little bit more. Right. On why the thought process behind aligning product and marketing towards, you know, a, a launch event or a release event? Yeah, I love the idea of having a uh, having a deadline. It really focuses the the team on on hitting that. And so, if you think about like what um, like Mark Benioff does with Dreamforce or any of their smaller event, like that has a set time. There's a date. Uh, the invites go out. You know, the they've booked the the arena, um, and they're going to make big product announcements at that event. And the engineers of the company know they have to hit that deadline, you know, same thing when, you know, Elon Musk does a, a launch event for a new Tesla product. Um, and, and, and by the way, these are, you know, two of the best, uh, not just founders, but I'd say like two of the best founders at marketing and they always use release events. Um, and so, you know, when Elon goes on stage to, uh, to, 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 um, to announce, or reveal the the Cybertruck or the Model Three. You know the team knows they have to hit that deadline, and so there's a tremendous forcing function inside the company to hit that date. You know, um, and then but externally, and so so from a product standpoint, I find that to be very very useful and focusing. But also from an external standpoint, um, it's tremendously helpful for marketing purposes 
to be organized around a single lightning strike type event. And so, you know, the mistake I see a lot of founders making is they get their news in drabs, you know, like a press release every week. Well, I think having one big event every quarter is better than having 52, you know, lame press releases a year. And so having these big release events, it's not just good for internally for product, it's good externally for marketing. Do you think that there's there's something else that, that kind of underlies that, which I'm curious to hear, especially from, from your perspective, having running these high growth you know, startups, which is, I, I think that there's, I see this a lot in companies I invest in that are growing quickly, et cetera. There's, there's like a, there's an understanding of pace that most people have not been used to, right? And I find this system, when I, when I internalize the system, I find that one of the outputs from creating this type of system, and I'm curious if you've seen this in your portfolio companies or your experiences, is it's kind of a forcing function of pace, right? So it's like, it's, it's I don't want to say it's easy, but there's one way of thinking you're working fast. And then there's, there's a totally different rhythm when you're inside these hyper growth companies that challenges your timeliness scale of what actually working fast is or what hyper growth actually is. Do you find that it sets kind of the, the course of the company more on that type of track where, you know, there's a set pace and people can kind of push into it or, um, or is that, you know, not necessarily a, a observation that resonates? Well, I think, so, so what I've recommended is that people use a system like the cadence once they get above, say, 50 employees. Okay. I think that when you're in the early stages of a company, the seed stage and so on, you're throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall, seeing what sticks. You want to be, you know, highly iterative. Um, and frankly, it's okay if the founders just run around every day telling everybody what to do and what to build. You know, that sort of direct, hands-on founder leadership works really well. I think once you start getting above 50 employees, that approach stops scaling quite as well. And certainly by the time you're in at hundreds of employees, uh, you need to have, you know, an org chart. You know, you need to, you start to have uh, organizational silos. You start to have middle management. And, and so people start to feel compartmentalized and disconnected from the founders and from each other uh, once you get into the hundreds of employees. And so if you don't bring some sort of operating system, that's when you get the, that sense of, of disconnect and disorganization and ultimately chaos. So to run these systems and kind of operating systems efficiently, of, of course, requires you know, still requires strong leadership and thoughtfulness. You had, a, you had another piece I want to dive into uh, that you wrote, drawing parallels between uh, the documentary Jordan's, uh, you know, The Last Dance and, uh, and leadership lessons that founders should take from it. I'm going to go through some of the top ones you, re- uh, you wrote and, and kind of read it out to you uh, at the Highline level. And then I'd love for you to kind of unpack that potentially with an anecdote or two or, or with some more color commentary. Um, so the first one I really liked was, you know, expect to be underestimated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's interesting. You know, Jordan, uh, he was cut from his high school varsity team as a sophomore but instead of quitting, he used that frustration as fuel to get better. And then later, uh, you know, e- even after winning the college national championship at UNC, he was only picked third in the NBA draft. And so my point there was if the future GOAT, you know, the future greatest of all time was underappreciated for his talent, you will be too. And just don't brood over the passes. You know, you're going to get a lot of passes in your life. Um, just focus on, you know, don't, don't let that get to you. You know, you want to focus on, on the yeses, not the nos. 
And, uh, you know, just, just if you want to be great, focus on proving it on the court with your performance. Next one was a missing piece of talent can bring it all together. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. Uh, these are facts I didn't completely know until I watched the, the documentary, but I think people think that Jordan went to the NBA and was immediately a huge success. And it wasn't true. He actually played with the bulls for six seasons before winning his first championship. Um, it actually took a long time to find all the right pieces, players like Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman to build around him. And it didn't really all come together until Phil Jackson became head coach and instituted the triangle offense. Um, in a sense, you know, Phil was the missing co-founder. And so what I've said is, you know, adding a missing piece of talent is often the big unlock for, for doing something great. And, um, you know, F Phil's genius, I think, was understanding that, you know, MJ couldn't do it alone, you know, no matter how great he was. Um, the, the prior coach, Doug Collins, um, his playbook was just give the ball to Michael and get out of the way. You know, that's actually a, a quote. Um, but but the, the problem was with that is that that offense was way too predictable because all they had to do was constantly double team MJ. And, uh, and so it was just too easy to defend against. And what Phil did with the triangle offense is it was all about creating threats, including but not limited to, to Jordan. It was, it was a flexible system. It allowed every player to contribute their, you know, and, and complement each other. And so by implementing the triangle offense, uh, anytime that Jordan was double teamed, he was able to then kick the ball to an open shooter. And, um, and, and, they were, and that's how they were able to dominate. This one you just you touched on, but I think you'll probably have a, a different, a slightly more nuanced take on it. You can't do it alone no matter how great you are. And I, I want to give a little bit of commentary on that, the way I interpreted that. Um, I think a lot of times in tech, we kind of talk about, or we, uh, you know, we kind of adulate founders, right? And we mm -hmm. talk about the concept of being a founder. And, and you know, if, if that was kind of the zenith for, for everyone in the industry or everybody was a founder, we wouldn't have the number sixes and the number 21s and the number 50s, et cetera, that really build these companies. Um, and that's, that's kind of, you know, the analogy in sports, of course, right? For folks that are listening that, that you know, know and like sports is, is role players, right? So how do you think about, you know, how do you think about that quote? And especially, David, from your experience, right? Having yeah. PayPal, Yammer, Zenefits, et cetera. How do, you, how do you digest that one? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely critical. Um, I mean, founders can't do it alone. They have to surround themselves with, you know, other great players and, uh, you know, and, and people and role players, you know. And you have to create a system that brings out the best in everybody. Uh, you know, my own experience, um, you know, I joined PayPal as an early employee, but I wasn't a founder in the sense of being there day one at the incorporation. Uh, but, you know, Peter and Max treated me as, as a co-founder effectively. I became head of product when I joined um, about, you know, 10 months later. And, um, and I was able to kind of run the product and, and build uh, the company as COO. And so, you know, and then I went on to, to found my own company, Yammer, after that. And so, yeah, I mean, you've got to find the right, like players who, uh, who fill in these missing pieces, you know? And so I'll see it a lot, for example, with, um, product founders, uh, you know, for, with a SaaS company and the DNA they're missing is they need a sales leader and they need more than a sales leader. They need a sales entrepreneur, somebody who can go in there and figure out the go to market and, and the sales, uh, process. And frankly, the sooner they get that person in there, the better off they're going to be. And so you always have to figure out, you know, what DNA am I missing in my company and how do I add that 
um, you know, to, to get to the next level. I think this next one builds kind of on the DNA uh, piece. Tolerate eccentricity, eccentricity if it helps you win. Yeah, I mean, one of the um, most uh, flamboyant and interesting characters associated with the the Bulls was was Dennis Rodman, and um, you know he's a really uh, eccentric guy. Uh, but Phil Jackson knew how to how to manage him, and he gave Dennis the room he needed. Uh, he would let him take, you know, Dennis took these like crazy vacations, uh, you know, when he's supposed to be at practice and, um, you know, and he would, um, you know, he was, he was very unorthodox, right? Like he, he's somebody that if you applied standard corporate HR to, you would have fired him for missing practice. But uh, Phil knew to give uh, Dennis room and he cultivated the loyalty uh, that would pay off on game day because Dennis always brought it on game day, you know, even if he missed a practice or two. And so I think, you know, a lot of big corporations lose sight of how to manage that eccentric 10X engineer. And to them, it's just not worth it. But I think, you know, startups have the flexibility to manage more like Phil, you know, you don't, it's not a one size fits all approach. The path to greatness can be lonely. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the things that comes out in that documentary is that uh, Jordan isn't necessarily friends with everybody. Um, he pushed the team like crazy, you know, and um, and he eventually, uh, you know, bent the team to his wi- to his will, you know, and um, and I think it's a good point, you know, um, your, your job as as a founder isn't necessarily to be the most popular. Now you need to treat people fairly, but you know, always remember that the team wants to win. And at the end of the day, I think that, you know, I, the sense I got watching the documentary from all those uh, people on the team who remember Jordan, you know, pushing them and, and being very tough is that ultimately they appreciate it because they got to be part of something really great. And so never forget that the team wants to be pushed because they want to be part of something great. You had this really interesting tweet, I think it was a couple months ago, um, and this could be a whole separate conversation on kind of what's going on in San Francisco, Silicon Valley right now and, and kind of, you know, other tech hubs. Uh, but you synthesized it really nicely, which was, you know, your your um, your hypothesis going forward was well-run cities are going to start to resemble uh, SaaS companies. And these cities have, you know, ARR, sales, customer success, marketing, R&D, et cetera. Um, I'd love for you to unpack, you know, that kind of framing and that that analogy of how you think about yeah of you know well-run cities well the starting point was back in may when covid first started happening and all work was going remote i just kind of observed that knowledge workers and especially in tech didn't need to be in the bay area anymore and it was already starting to be the case that you're getting tech hubs in many other cities you know obviously you're in atlanta it's, it's getting to be an increasingly exciting place to be but that trend was really accelerated by the fact that COVID allowed remote work. And you started seeing very early on people moving to alternative destinations. And you would also see polls at places like Facebook and Google saying that, you know, half the company was thinking about moving because they didn't really love where they were. It was more just about the fact that the network effects of that geography, they had to be there in order to do their job. And so my observation was, well, you know, it used to be that cities would compete with each other to try and win corporations. They try to get the corporation to create some new headquarters there. 
But I think in this new world of remote work, cities are going to compete to win knowledge workers just directly because people can work from anywhere. And so the smart cities have already started to do that. Um, the, the mayor who's getting a ton of attention right now is the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez. And he's out there, you know, really evangelizing for the city of Miami. Uh, he's like, how can I help? You know, and certainly for those of us who, you know, are still living in San Francisco, it's really a, a breath of fresh air to, to not be demonized by the local politicians, but instead to have a politician saying, how can I help? Um, and so that really sparked the, the next thought, which is, you know, one of the reasons why Mayor Suarez is, is so successful is he's actually engaging in sales, you know. And let me tell you, if you're a company that's engaging in sales and you're a, a competitor, not only doesn't believe in sales, but feels entitled to your business, you're, the, the, the company that's engaging in sales is going to win every time. And so I tend to think that competition will push these cities to, to react a little bit more like SaaS companies where they're going to be doing sales, they're going to do evangelism, they're going to do marketing. And they'll start to think of um, taxpayers as a little bit like subscribers. You know, the, the tax revenue these knowledge workers bring is a little bit like annually recurring revenue. And if you do a good job and you have a low churn rate, your AR will go up and you'll be able to reinvest that in your city and you'll be able to bring the next set of, of benefits. And frankly, if you do a bad job, you're going to get swiftly punished because your subscribers are going to churn and they're going to go somewhere else. And, um, and so I think that, that that could be a really interesting dynamic that pushes cities to get better. David, as we, as we round out the conversation, you know, we're, taping, we're taping this podcast on the day of the inauguration. Um, and I, I'd be remiss to let you go without getting your thoughts on um, on where we go from here, right? We're uh, it's you know we're we're highly divided as a country. There's you know, and and not from the prototypical, you know, we have different opinions on the on the left and the right. That's always been there, um, but there are these underlying forces, and and it, it certainly feels like a more divisive environment. And it can feel again outside in um, very disheartening, you know, on on whether government is truly functioning. At the capability that it needs to, especially you know, for the fact that we're staring a massive health crisis in the face. Um, so, where do we go from here? What you know, what are your thoughts? I know that's a very broad question, but how do you digest kind of the the enormity of the inauguration today? You know, and and um, and and moving forward, how we think about things. Yeah. So I, I watched the inauguration earlier today, and I thought uh, President Biden now uh, gave a great speech, and I think he struck all the right notes of around unity and reconciliation. And I think what we need right now is a reconciliation agenda, not a revenge agenda. Um, there are partisans on both sides who are always looking to kind of up the ante and seek reprisals and engage in this game of tit for tat retaliation. And I think that most of the country understands that the hyperpartisanship is, is out of control. Um, but sometimes people have a blind spot. They can only see when the other side does it, engages the hyperpartisanship. And we really have to, I think, be a little bit more open-minded. If we're going to back away from this ledge if, of, of sort of hyperpartisanship and, and sort of live together as a country, we've got to recognize that when we engage in demonizing the other side. And, and I do think that, that tech, especially in the Bay Area, because it is, frankly, such a political monoculture, I mean, everyone sort of has the same views, can really have a blind spot uh, with respect to this. And, um, and so I think you saw that a little bit with the censorship debate that, um, you know, they, they've got justifications, big tech does for all of their actions. They're not dumb people. They can, 
offer explanations, but but they're kind of missing the big picture, which is, you know, they deplatformed millions of of people uh, when they took the the act, not just to sort of um, silence Trump, but really uh, to cancel Parler. They were, you know, deplatforming millions of Americans, and um, and especially as a permanent move. You know, I think that temporary. Uh, temporary suspensions in the midst of uh, of a crisis when there's violence going on. I can understand those things until we get our facts around the situation, you know, arms around the situation. But I worry that these uh, this, this jump to taking permanent actions um, right away uh, that felt very partisan, you know, I, I think we need to sort of um, back away from from those types of actions and um, and, and again, you know, listen to what President Biden is saying about reconciliation. Well, David, it, it was a it was a pleasure having you on today, and, and I, I really appreciate that last comment, especially you know, one of on, on your podcast, the the All In Pod, which is one of my favorite listens. Um, I really appreciated actually last time. I think you you described your political perspective as as one of anti hysteria. <laughs> right. I think that's certainly something you know we can we can all use a little bit more of on, on both sides. So this was, this was a ton of fun. Thanks so much for the insights. Thanks so much for spending the time. Uh, really, really enjoyed the conversation today. Appreciate it. Yeah. Great to be with you.